13. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. If you haven't figured it out yet, this morning we are honoring our high school seniors. There are 18 young men and women who are graduating from high school later this month who are affiliated with this congregation. And at the end of this service, our shepherds will be praying with each one of those seniors who are present with us today. It is a great day to honor and, and to encourage and to support these young people. And with that, I intend to tailor the lesson today towards them specifically, but hopefully all of you can benefit from it generally. And what I want to do is I want to encourage our graduating seniors to not be ordinary. That's the message of the day. Don't be ordinary. And that might seem like a very simple message. That might seem like an unnecessary message but hopefully you'll understand why that's the message of the day in just a moment. You know, in Luke chapter 6, we read about Jesus going up on a mountain by himself for an entire night to pray about the men he would choose to be his apostles. He spends an entire night praying. It's the only time recorded in Scripture that Jesus did this. And he chose 12 men to be his apostles. And what's so fascinating is that there's nothing significant, nothing special, nothing worth recognition, nothing worthy of recognition about any of these 12 men. It's not like he's choosing a whole bunch of Pauls who went to school, who have a master's degree in whatever field they're studying. He chose 12 ordinary men. Think about it. Peter, James, John and Andrew, the four of them are blue-collar, self-employed fishermen. Matthew is a government employee. A guy named Simon is a radical conservative. These are guys that you and I would easily affiliate with. I mean, these guys are, most of them at least, are from Galilee. If you're from Galilee, you were viewed in that day kind of like the country folk. You were from the south, even though you were actually from the north. 
In fact, we just read in Acts chapter 4 where the religious leaders in, in the book of Acts looked at James and Peter and said, these are common, uneducated men. They were ordinary. But Jesus used them to do something extraordinary. And I want us to consider today what made these ordinary guys become extraordinary. And I want to do it by looking at the one guy among, among them that was always just a little bit extra. And that's Peter. Think about it. Peter was always a little bit extra. This is the guy who in one moment is confessing that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, and then the very next moment is rebuking that individual, telling him, no, you're not going to do what you just said you're going to do. This is the guy who whipped out a sword and tried to decapitate somebody in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus. This is the guy who, when he realized Jesus was standing on the, sea, on the, sh the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection, jumped in the water and swam to shore even though his boat was filled with fish. This is the guy that was always just a little bit extra. And so let's consider this morning what we can learn from Peter in particular about an extraordinary life. I think the first lesson we can take away is that the extraordinary life does not stay still. You remember that time Jesus had to catch up with the apostles after the feeding of the 5,000? You can read about it in Matthew chapter 14. Wow, that font doesn't look good up there, that color. An extraordinary life that does not stay still if you can't read that. Matthew chapter 14, between verse 22 and 33, it's the episode where Jesus sends the apostles in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee while he stayed back and dismissed the crowds that were there for the feeding. In the middle of the night, Jesus catches up to them. But he doesn't pull up alongside them in another boat. He approaches them walking on the water. And it so scares them that they assume it's got to be a ghost. But then Jesus speaks, and they suddenly realize who it is. And what does Peter do? You know, the ordinary person would say, all right, it's Jesus, come on board. But the person who's just a little bit extra is going to say, hey, tell me to come to you and I'll walk out there. And we normally appeal to this story so that we can talk about the fact that Peter got distracted, that Peter's faith was a little bit weak, that Peter started to sink and Jesus had to save him. But man, how amazing is the story when you consider the fact that Peter was the only one of those 12 men who was willing to get out of the boat. Think about it this way. The boat was comfortable compared to the open water. The boat was safe compared to the open water. The boat was riskless compared to the open water. But Peter didn't want to be in the boat anymore. 
He couldn't stay still and be with Jesus at the same time. So Peter got up and Peter took a step forward because he wanted more than a complacent, stagnant, conditional, comfortable discipleship. And he got out of the boat. Now, I know the rest of the story doesn't go that well for him, but just stop there and consider the implications. What did... What, what gave Peter the confidence to step out on that water? What made him so comfortable that he was willing to step out of the boat? Well, I think when he saw Jesus walking on the water, it finally sunk in for Peter that nothing is impossible for the Lord. That nothing is impossible for God. You know, throughout Scripture, that statement is repeated a number of times, and in, originally I was going to go through all these verses, but just know, to, know that throughout the Bible, many times we are told that nothing is impossible for the Lord. We know that to be theoretically true. But oftentimes when we transition out of the realm of theory into the realm of practicality, we don't act like we believe it to be true. What ends up happening more often than not as we approach difficulties and decisions and obstacles and opportunities with an I can't mentality. We say things like, I can't do this or I can't do that. And in such instances, we're like Moses standing before the burning bush saying, I can't speak. Or Saul standing in the military camp saying, I can't wait on Samuel. Or Elijah standing in the cave saying, I can't face Jezebel again. Or Jonah standing at the dock saying, I can't go to Nineveh. And the problem with an I can't mentality is that it focuses on the difficulty rather than the deity. It's looking at God through the lens of our circumstances and challenges rather than looking at our circumstances and challenges through the lens of God. And what happens is we intentionally or unintentionally shrink God down to a size that we fit with. But when Peter stepped out of the boat that day, he had abandoned the I can't mentality, not because he had confidence in himself, but because he had confidence in his Lord. He believed that with, the, with Christ, anything was indeed possible. And his momentary I can mentality reminds us of two important biblical statements. The first is here on the screen in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In this passage, Paul indicated that he would not place limitations on what he is capable of doing because Christ would empower him to do whatever he needed to do. In like manner, an extraordinary life does not place limitations on what it is capable of doing. We often approach our abilities 
with limitations. We often approach our opportunities with limitations. We often approach our plans with limitations. But with Christ, in terms of our discipleship, in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of our faithfulness, there are no limitations. Because the extraordinary life recognizes that we can do more than we ever imagined since nothing is impossible with God. But I also want you to consider Christ's prayer in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39 when he said, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as, yet not as I will, but as you will. In that prayer, Jesus indicated that he would not place limitations on what he was willing to do because God's will took precedence over his comfort. And in like manner, an extraordinary life does not place limitations on what it is willing to do because the extraordinary life recognizes that what God wants will always outweigh what it wants. You see, here's the point. An extraordinary life does not stay still. An extraordinary life is looking for the ways that it can impact for Christ. An extraordinary life understands that there are no limitations to what it is capable of because its power is found in Christ. An extraordinary life understands that there are no limitations as to what it should be willing to do because it's all done for Christ. And I'm challenging everyone, but especially our graduating seniors, to not be ordinary. To be extraordinary like Peter and to be willing to get out of the boat no matter what challenge you're facing, no matter what difficulty you, uh, is ahead, no matter what it requires of you. Because an extraordinary life has no limitations. But you know, that's not the only thing we can learn from this extraordinary disciple. Because Peter also teaches us that the extraordinary life does not stay down. Does not stay still, nor does it stay down. During the last hours of Jesus' life, all of the apostles fall in one way, shape, or form. In other words, they all fell Jesus to some degree. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and led the soldiers into the garden to arrest him in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47 through 50. Peter made an attempt to fight for Jesus in the garden, but later denied his association with Jesus during his trial, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 69 through 75. As for the other ten apostles, we're told that they fled from Jesus in the garden when the mob approached him in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56. The apostles' failure in this moment serves as a reminder that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says. And the point is that, that falling is inevitable. We're all going to fall. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to sin. 
the gauge of an extraordinary life is not whether or not you fall, because you're going to fall. The gauge of an extraordinary life is whether or not you recover. You see, if you just focus in on two of these apostles, Peter and Judas, for a moment, here's what I want you to notice. Peter and Judas essentially are guilty of the same thing. Rejecting Jesus for selfish reasons. Judas betrayed Jesus for a financial reward. Peter denied Jesus for the purpose of self-preservation. But not only are Peter and Judas guilty of the same sin, but they're both experiencing regret. We're told in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 and 4, that Judas was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver and even went so far as to say, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas felt guilty for what he did. We're told in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 75 that after the rooster crowed that final time, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why is Peter out there weeping bitterly? Because he feels guilty. Both Peter and Judas felt remorse for what they did. So the difference between them is not whether or not they fell. They both fell. And the difference between them is not whether or not they felt guilty because they both felt guilty. You know what the real difference is between Peter and Judas? One recovered, one didn't. Judas was so overwhelmed by his guilt that he decided he no longer deserved to live, so he went out and hanged himself, according to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 5. Peter, on the other hand, was changed by his guilt. Peter hung around, and he got to stand on the seashore of Galilee and have Jesus give him a do-over. He had the opportunity because he didn't let his guilt keep him down, because he recovered from his sin. He had the opportunity to be there on the day of Pentecost, to preach the first gospel sermon. All things Judas missed out on. See, the difference between Peter and Judas wasn't whether or not they fell, nor was it whether or not they felt guilty. The difference was whether or not they recovered whether or not they got back up. Because Judas decided to stay down, he missed the resurrection. He missed the inauguration of the church. He missed the evangelistic campaign throughout the whole, the whole world. And I want you to think about this. When a child begins walking, he or she, they're going to fall, and they're going to fall often. But they have a choice to give up and continue crawling for the rest of their life or to get up and try again. Now, I have yet to meet an adult who has the ability to walk but chooses to crawl around on all fours. At some point in time, even though you kept falling, you chose to get up. See, the point is everyone will fall at some point in time, but only the righteous will rise back up. 
You know how I know that? Because Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16 says, For the righteous fall seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. So are you a Peter or are you a Judas? It really all depends on whether or not you'll get, give up or get up when you fall. Seniors, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to do things wrong. You're going to make horrible choices at times. Life is not going to always be perfect. But whether or not you get back up when you fall, whether or not you repent of your sin, confess your sin, turn it over to Christ, that's what's extraordinary. And that's what we see in the life of Peter. But there's one last thing I want to mention from the life of Peter about the extraordinary life, because Peter teaches us that the extraordinary life does not stay quiet. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were on their way to the temple when they encountered a lame man whom Peter ended up healing. That miracle created such a buzz around Jerusalem that it brought the masses to Peter and gave him an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. But that same buzz also brought the ire of the religious leaders who had Peter and John arrested. And while they were being questioned by those leaders, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 tells us that those leaders saw the boldness or the confidence or the courage of Peter and John and took note that they had been with Jesus. Now, how was their boldness visible? Their boldness was visible because they were willing to proclaim uncomfortable, unpopular, unconventional truths. In particular, if you look at Acts chapter 4, Verses 8 through 10, you'll see that Peter spoke the truth regarding culpability. He said, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter boldly proclaimed that the, the men by whom they were being questioned, excuse me, Peter, Peter boldly proclaimed to the men by whom they were being questioned that they were guilty of orchestrating the death of Jesus Christ. He is, in effect, calling these guys murderers. And that's bold. Sometimes it takes extraordinary courage to call out sin. Cultural acceptability, political correctness, and, and self-preservation, they can hinder such boldness. But Peter wasn't concerned with such things, and as a result, he wasn't afraid to call out the sin of these powerful men. Let's face it. We exist in a culture that doesn't call sin, sin. And if we want to be more than ordinary... We're going to have to be a people who are willing. Who are willing to call sin, sin. And to our young people, to our graduating seniors, whether you enter the workforce or you go off to college or, or whatever it may be, you're going to face that challenge 
of being willing to stand for truth when nobody else will? And are you going to be willing, are you going to be willing to boldly say sin is sin? Because that's extraordinary. But that's not the only words Peter spoke here. Because Peter was also willing to speak the truth regarding exclusivity. Look at what he said in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. He said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter boldly proclaimed that Jesus is the Savior. Not a Savior, but the Savior. He was in effect saying that all other religions are wrong and all other messianic figures are frauds. It takes extraordinary courage to make such an exclusive claim. Religious pluralism demands religious tolerance and compromise, but Peter wasn't compromising here. He was willing to boldly speak the truth regardless of whether or not it was acceptable. And guess what? We're facing the same dilemma because we have a world that is telling us that if you don't tolerate everyone else's religious views, then you're unloving. Then you're not politically correct. Then you should be canceled. But if we want to be more than ordinary, we better be willing to speak the truth when it comes to the ex exclusive message of the gospel. Because Jesus did that. Peter wasn't the first to boldly call sin, sin. He wasn't the only one who boldly proclaimed culpability. Jesus did so when he said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. And Peter wasn't the first to boldly proclaim an exclusive message about salvation. Jesus did that in John chapter 14 and verse 6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we want to be extraordinary, we're not going to need, we cannot be a people who stay quiet. And if you look at how the story of Peter unfolds and concludes here in Acts chapter 4, you'll see that they are charged by those religious leaders not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus anymore. But Peter said this in verse 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What Peter and John are saying is we're not going to stop talking about Jesus. Because our responsibility is to obey God first and foremost. And what you're asking us to do is in direct opposition to his will. In other words, Peter refused to be quiet. An extraordinary life is one that will not stay quiet on matters such as these. Peter was that guy who was just a little bit extra because he wasn't willing to stay still. He wasn't willing to stay down and he wasn't willing to stay quiet. And I know you've heard this little illustration before. But at 211 degrees, water is hot. 
It will scold you. I'm scald you. I'm not getting on to you. <laughs> but at 212 degrees, water boils. It goes from water to steam. That one little degree makes all the difference. See, the difference between the ordinary life and the extraordinary life is that little extra. And this morning, I'm challenging our graduating seniors, but I'm also challenging every person in this audience to be just a little extra. Because that's what our Lord deserves. Don't stay still. Don't stay down. Don't stay quiet. The gospel is too great for that. This morning, if you're here with us and you need to put on Christ in baptism, we want to invite you to do that. If you're here and you have guilt that needs to be dealt with after having become a child of God, then we want to encourage you to do that. Whatever your need is this morning, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Kyle for that lesson this morning. Uh, as Doug mentioned at the beginning of service this morning, please let us know of your attendance with that QR code in front of you, um, whether you're a member or a visitor, and we hope you'll be back with us uh, this evening uh, at 6 p.m. for our evening worship service. <clears throat> also, just as a reminder, after our closing song, we'll have you be seated, and, and after the closing prayer, we're going to have our elders come up and pray on behalf of our seniors, so don't go anywhere after the closing prayer. Uh, we'll sing Mansion Over the Hilltop, number 829, as our closing song. We'll sing the first and last verse of this song. <clears throat> I'm satisfied with. 